Bristol to win as Ferrari City. A dramatic 2-1 win at Bristol City on Sunday. Three wins from four. We're going to be asking questions about whether this is just, as maybe some supporters are suggesting, papering over some very large cracks, or whether this could be a, turn, a corner turned for Norwich City and for David Wagner. Welcome to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. Full quota uh, on these lovely blue sofas that, we, uh, that we've got. Still looking for some yellow and green ones, so if anyone out there has some, please do get in touch. I'm not, trying to not means just lifting it up two flights of stairs. <laughs> no, no, yeah, you, <laughs> we'll add. Well, we've got a lift, so we can, I'll, I'll help you to a lift and then we can do it that way, but that's fine. I'm Connor Southwell, Sam Seaman to my right, Paddy Davitt and Adam Harvey to my left to reflect on what's been a busy old week for Norwich City, culminating in yesterday's win at Ashton Gate, which uh, I'm not sure even some of the players would have seen coming as the uh, clock ticked over 90 minutes. It was a dramatic late winner from Adam Eder. We had David Wagner on the pitch. We had Bedlam in the away end. Paddy, to start with you, I mean, after everything that's happened this week, the defeat at Watford, which was um, bad, the, the AGM as well, the comments that surfaced from that, felt like a, a result, a moment, that everybody needed um, connected to Norwich City. Yeah, I think that's, that's a fair summation. I mean, obviously, we'll treat it in isolation, what we saw on Sunday, because, you know, in the broader picture, I'm not sure it resolves any of the bigger bigger picture issues, certainly the manner of that performance again, but it doesn't feel really the moment in the manner that they've won that game that we should be dissecting it quite so brutally for me. Let's just, as you say, because it's been unyielding misery it feels for quite a considerable amount of time and then culminating with that annual meeting and comments about whingers and uh, what have you and play up Pompey that uh, let's just pause and try and and I've seen it on social media since since the final whistle Sunday yeah nobody's saying this is now a corner turned or you know Wagner is the man mid to longer term but in the here and now given the backdrop of what's led us to this point You've got to take the as most joy out of it as you can, you know, in, to win a game in that manner. Um, but nobody should be kidded by, you know, the underlying elements of that performance that, you know, it was probably in spite of rather than because because of. But um, but no fair play, three wins in four, remarkably, um, and two home games to come, and four point gap as it stands to the playoffs. So things do turn remarkably quickly in the championship, and uh, and they needed to because. Um, you know, as we all know, it's been quite a, an uncomfortable period for David Wagner principally, and uh, that's why it was on a human level because I think he still retains quite a lot of uh, you know, um, goodwill from a lot of Norwich fans, even if they don't necessarily feel that he is he is the man to lead them forward uh, in the mid to longer term. But but as a as a, an individual, as a representative of your football club, the passion and the enthusiasm and the, the willingness to turn this around, you can't deny him that and you can't deny him that celebration moment with Adam Eder and the players. So, yeah, respite, but only time will tell now if this is something you know, resembling a watershed moment for him and Norwich this season. Indeed, and, and we'll get into maybe this kind of uh, results performance debate, which it feels like we've, we've had quite a lot this, um, this season with Norwich City, but... Um, Sam, it felt like, uh, particularly in the second half, Norwich were after their, their equaliser, which obviously came from an own goal from George Tanner, um, after a lovely, as Norwich City goals tend to, a lovely pass from Gabriel Sarra to, to Dimi Yanoulis. Um, it felt like Norwich were pretty set, pretty content for a point. It yeah. kind of felt like that was the way the game was going. Bristol City saw a lot of the ball, but maybe similarly to QPR, failed to maybe convert that possession into and control into real clear-cut opportunities. There were a couple of real saves Angus Gunn had to make before half-time, but less so in the second half. Um, and then that moment occurs. And um, for Adam Eder in particular, I mean, David Wagner's christened him the, the, the most dangerous substitute in, in the championship. I mean, it's, it's, it's brilliant for him as well. And, and, and he's someone who's had to endure a lot of frustration and a lot of patience at Norwich City. And there's, there's still questions to answer about him as well and his kind of um, long-term future and whether he can convert what he's doing as a substitute at the moment into a starter. But it felt, it felt really positive for, for him as, uh, as well. Yeah, I'm delighted for him. I think you sort of highlighted the, the strange situation that he's in now there because all he's doing really at the moment is reinforcing that idea that I think Wagner has started to suggest that he's he's sort of a super sub. Obviously, he's never going to say that prevents him from being able to start because he probably wants to keep the motivation high um, for Ida. But, yeah, he, he does seem to be proving that. You look at Watford, obviously, on Tuesday when he started and 
didn't really have a, an especially good game. Um, to be honest, I thought struggled to really make an impact on it, and that's the pattern that we've seen throughout the season. Then he goes to Bristol, doesn't start, and and scores in the um, in the 95th minute, obviously. And it's hard to really argue with what Wagner's saying. I'm not I'm not really sure what it is that that takes him to that level. Wagner seemed to suggest that it's sort of. Uh, a readiness when he comes onto the pitch that maybe other substitutes don't have, that he doesn't need any time to sort of hit the ground running. But I actually thought, aside from the goal, which was incredibly well taken, to be fair, I think there was a, a touch across the defender that was just really intelligent to, to stop the defender getting in there. Um, but before that, his touch was really off. He didn't really have much of an impact. And maybe rather than just feeling like he's a, a super sub, I feel like he's just a penalty box striker who isn't, Maybe as as technically um, capable, maybe as as some of the other strikers Norwich have had in in recent years. But when the ball drops in the box and it's you know Adam Eder's in and around it, you do feel pretty much like like he's going to be able to finish it. You look at the goals that he scored um, this season. I think uh, there was that one, obviously Hull, where it's just dropped sort of three yards out, and he's the first one to react. Cardiff again, he knew where to stand when the ball's bounced off the keeper to him and then this one um, again in the box close range finish even going back to last season I think one of his his rare goals was um, getting a point at QPR literally from one yard out so um, as much as that feels like a, a fairly simple thing to do you have to know where to be and you have to anticipate pretty well you look at strikers who have made a career of that like Jordan Rhodes is a, probably a prime example of that so I think to me it suggests more that he he is capable in those scenarios where teams are trying to get something from the game or maybe counter-attacking and the ball's just going to drop somewhere and he seems to have that knack for knowing where it's going to land. So that's where I'd probably draw that distinction. I think in general, slower possession-based play, he probably struggles to really make an impact because I just, I'm just i not really sure his touch is really up to that sort of style of play in those sorts of situations. But we made the um, the comparison yesterday on the way back to Lukaku and I do sort of see that I think he comes alive in certain situations but at times you do look at it and you wonder maybe how he's got to the level that he has with with the touch because it does bounce off him a little bit um, too regularly and that might be what what stops him from going on and having a, a real top level career but you know, I think you can be sure out of everyone in the Norwich squad at the moment if you wanted a chance to fall to anybody in the 18-yard box or you just wanted the ball to, to drop loose you'd expect Adam Eder to be on the end of that and to dispatch it. And hopefully that's the reputation that he can go and, and stake for himself rather than one as a, a super sub. Because to be honest, as much as he won't like it, he is doing a pretty good job of, of casting himself in that role this season. Yeah, and, and it's it's a mission for everybody. Mission for, for him, I guess, for David Wagner, for Norwich City structures and all, all of that kind of thing, I guess, to try and find a way of incorporating that pace and power, which is so effective off the bench, into uh, into something that they can really harness from the start. And uh, yeah, you, you used the Lukaku example. I was I was going to say literally the same thing because technically there isn't that kind of. Um, I don't want to say maybe maybe if you compare him to Huang, who I think is a, is a little bit more technical, able to link, um, able to, but but maybe doesn't possess the same pace and power. He's he's quite a blunt force, Adam Ida. When uh, and, and yesterday's a good example. He's in a foot race, and maybe that that aggression is what I've been wanting to see from him. That ability just to just shrug off a defender and, and and take the finish really well was was superb. Adam, let's let's come to you because. Uh, as, as we said right from the top, it's been a difficult week for those Norwich fans. One thousand one hundred travelled to to Ashton Gate. I'd, I'd imagine for a lot of the afternoon they, they maybe would have spent their time wondering why they, they committed to early coaches and the money that they had spent. By the end of it, the feeling had completely changed. And again, we're going to get into the performance, but I just want to talk about that feeling because there hasn't been much of that in, in, in the Norwich City world as of late. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, you go to football to see your team win and get three points on a Saturday or Sunday, as it was in this scenario. Um, of course, the comments during the week you know, are not helpful. It's kind of... I suppose made fans feel like their kind of voices are maybe not being heard by those that are in in power at the football club at the moment, and ultimately the fans are the ones that will be here from from the minute they you know start supporting the club till, till the day they die. And I suppose you know those that in the ownership. I mean Norwich, of course, is a little bit different in that Delia and Michael are, are fans of the football club, but typically football owners won't be here in the long term. You know they are just sort of short-term custodians of of a, of a you know a team. Um, not that that's the case for Norwich, but. 
I think for those that would have would have made that journey and you know, spent hard hard earned money, that that moment at the end will will live long in their memory for for the upcoming weeks and games. Of course, lots of big games coming up for for Norwich, and they need to up the performances because the performance, you know, for, for any fan that was there, is it's not a pretty watch. It's not. A, not what Ben Napper wants. It's probably not what the, what the Norwich fan base want in terms of a, a style of football that kind of you can associate with the team and, and, and Norwich as a club. Um, but moving forwards, I mean that moment will hopefully breed a bit of confidence into some of the players that have been lacking it so so desperately. And I think the fact they're now starting to get a lot of these kind of starters back as well that have been injured for for quite a while. Um, hopefully that will help David Wagner in what was at the start of the season working quite well in terms of his system and. Um, and this sort of style of style of play. So uh, we'll see what we get. But I think, yeah, from, from a fan's perspective, if you're in that away end, at that moment will be, um, you know, that that will be sort of a, a mood booster for them for the whole week, really. You know, that they can live off that and making that long poke home from from Bristol, they at least had something to to kind of cling on to. Because yeah, if you want to sort of break down the 90 minutes performance, which we're going to come on to, um, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't pretty particularly. It wasn't, and it, it, it's it's so so often in football it can be about moments, and that feels like it could be a moment, and ultimately we won't know until maybe we see what happens against Preston and, and Sheffield Wednesday in, in, in the next two home games. But if there feels like an opportunity there at least to try and unify a bit, I'm not sure it will fully be be unified unless Norwich can can go and win maybe, maybe even their next three, given the the third of, of those is an East Anglian derby. But but certainly at this moment of everything that happened this week. A moment like that was, uh, I'm sure everyone, certainly internally at Norwich City, was breathing a massive sigh of relief. Um, but Paddy, let's let's kind of break down the game. I, I described it in my verdict really as a game of four quarters. Um, Norwich started well. I thought they started the better actually. They had two really good opportunities from Ashley Barnes on El Hernandez, then hit the post. Um, they didn't have a shot then after that on El Hernandez one in, in minute 24. Uh, through to half time, Jason Knight scores a goal on the the, the 34th minute. There's sustained Bristol City pressure. There's a, a Tommy Conway chance after he gets slotted through from from Andy Vyman that, that Angus Gunn makes an excellent save. There was a, a header as well, which uh, I'm looking. I thought it was uh, Rob Dickey in real time, but my my. Uh, what I'm looking at suggested it was Jason Knight with a header um, and it, that was a great save from Angus Gunn that he tipped over uh, and Norwich did, were able to get into at half time they came out and again with a better side of that second half um, got obviously the goal but but before that had a, a flurry, well not really a flurry but uh, Ashley Barnes had a, had a header it was a couple of shots from Gabriel Sara, a couple from Marcelino Nunez, then the, then the goal comes and again similarly to the first half they didn't have a single shot until Adamida Put the ball in the back of the net in the 95th minute. It was uh, it was all Bristol City who who had uh, what six opportunities um, prior to that Adamida strike. So really weird game in terms of how it transpired, and, and that's probably led to Liam Manning after the game feeling um, probably pretty hard done by because he felt his side did have control. Um, what did you make of the performance? Because a lot of it now will shift. We've, we've spoken about three wins in four. I saw someone uh, and apologies, I don't know who posted it, but I saw someone um, post on on social media last night. Even though it is three wins out of four, it kind of hasn't felt that that way in a sense. And um, certainly the, the performances, they've done it. Uh, I, was, I was looking just um, as uh, Sam was speaking. The, the possession, their possession in the last three games against QPR, it was 38%. Watford, uh, all right, they lost that game, but that was 34%. Uh, Bristol City was only 40%. They've they've not achieved an XG of, of one in their last three games. So that, that maybe hints at, at the performance levels. I guess that the conversation will be, whether, as I said, right, right at the start, whether this is a run that is maybe papering over some of the cracks that Norwich City have at the moment, or whether it can actually be the foundation for dragging those performance levels up and, and matching them with results. We, we've spoken before about David Wagner teams being quite streaky. What do you make of the performance levels at, at the moment? Are they doing enough to convince you that it can be, it can be a, a period, I guess, where, where maybe they can have a bit more success in terms of aligning those performances and results together? Well, what I would say is, I mean, I was going to quote those possession stats in the last three games, but they've effectively played three teams in the mid to lower levels of the table. You know, until we see, dare I say, Ipswich in three games' time, returns against Southampton. I think that's over the festive period at Carrow Road. Um, Leeds is January as well, and of course they'll have to go to Leicester. If if this template was effective in terms of results against that that bracket of team, then then yes, I think there is a sustainable argument you can make. But uh, like a lot of this at the minute, the jury remains out because um, 
you know, Michael Wynne Jones going back to that annual meeting in terms of results rather than performances or how they were playing said it was about consistency or an inconsistency, and that's the root cause that they're not consistent enough, both in results or performances. And you just think that template, how they're trying to go about it in the last two or three games, that's that's not a recipe for me for a consistency over a half a season, longer, ideally. Um, because really you break down and you broke it down there. That game could have been the way you broke that down in terms of chances and when they came in the game. That that was Watford as well. You know, from there was I think you put the stat out, there was this huge swathe of time at Vicarage Road in that second half where Norwich didn't create anything. And that isn't sustainable. Game after game after game. What it does show is they have a finisher in Adamida. They have despite, you know, maybe to the contrary on this this downward spiral, there is character, there is a togetherness, there is a willingness to fight for each other. They are all admirable qualities, but you do need to... It's like you're going to the well every game to try and dredge something rather than a far more economical style of play, a strategy in and out of possession that is going to be residually effective to pick up results. And again, I I keep cross-referencing, you look at Southampton, you know what a Russell Martin team's all about, week in, week out. They're playing in a style that is proving robust enough to get results in the championship week in, week out. Ipswich, dare I say, you know, Leeds have picked up under Farker. Leicester have been there all the way through. You know, these teams have a clear identity for me, a clear style of play of what they're trying to do. The players that they have fit the system, which again cuts to the maybe the recruitment debate of this, this in terms of Norwich. Um, so no, at, at the minute, I'm. I wouldn't be overly confident that you know the manner that they're mining results in this three or four game spell is going to be over the entirety of what remains of the season enough to get the job done. If the job done is to be in and around that top six conversation, um, it just feel you know. I mean, if you're reliant on a 95th minute winner, if you, you know you're QPR, they were even. I wasn't at the game, but they, you know they were very fortunate that day. If QPR had a clinical edge, I don't think they win that game. So. As David himself said yesterday, a lot of championship games are fine margins and too often in this run up to now, they fell the wrong side of it. Um, and of course, they'd start to throw in the mitigation of injuries. I think that masks too many deficiencies in terms of the coaching and the, what those players who are available have been asked to do in and out of possession. Um, but, you know, to, to go back to what I said at the start, you know, maybe we, maybe we part of that for the here and now and, and just reflect on three wins in four. How they've achieved them, you can debate, but they have achieved them. And and if they follow up now with two home wins, ideally, or certainly four points from six against Preston and Sheffield Wednesday, then you know that is that is starting to get into the realms of maybe this is sustainable. Maybe they have found something. And what I'm kind of clinging to a little bit on this run is I I I don't think they're playing well, but they're getting results. So with results, and ideally better defensive performances breeds confidence with confidence maybe they start to feel they can express themselves a bit more on the pitch so it's almost line in the sand pick up some results through that maybe that'll breed a little bit of confidence and then we'll start to see a bit more of what we want to see in terms of on the ball and through that you know you know maybe it can trigger something moving into the second half of the season with of course you know the likes of Gunny now back massive player for them Grant Hanley not that far away unless he has a hopefully he doesn't have another setback and and Crucially, I think Josh Sargent, hopefully, you know, before Christmas, and then all the elements are there for them to to try and get back to what they were doing in that first eight or nine game block. Yeah, and 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 as we see, Adam, I mean, these these things tend to go either one or two ways. When we when we talk about maybe a, a difference between performance and results, you either have the performances catching up with the results, or the results catching up with the performances. So it's up it's up to Norwich, I guess, to kind of lift those levels of performance up, and and. Paddy mentioned it there. They've got a really good opportunity now. Two home games. Preston, who are majorly out of form, recording some of the worst numbers in, in, in the division at the moment. And obviously Sheffield Wednesday, who are rooted to the bottom of the championship, although have picked up a little bit. They've got a real opportunity now in front of their home fans, where it's been quite miserable being a Norwich City fan this, this season. A real opportunity to inject some optimism through their performances and, and hopefully to show a bit more control of, of matches, which, as we've said there and, and, and maybe was documented again yesterday, just feels like they're lacking a little bit. And if they can wrestle some of that back, combined with obviously the, the attacking edge that they do have and have had, and even though they're, they're, they're seemingly outperforming their, their numbers a little bit at the moment, it feels like this is a real opportunity for them to, to to change the narrative a bit. Obviously, with that East Anglian derby on the horizon as well. Yeah, I think as well. Given like three of the last 
or three of the last four games, the, the, the two wins uh, at Cardiff and Bristol City, you know, 80 90% of Carrow weren't at those games. I mean, that win against QPR was, was pretty drab. Again, I wasn't at the game, but, you know, they weren't there to see that Adamida moment. They weren't there at Cardiff to see the kind of rapid turnaround they had in that sort of three or four minute spell. So it feels quite a while since kind of the home fans have actually seen a one, a good performance and a, and a sort of a good result uh, matching that. So. I think this is an opportunity, uh, four points outside the playoffs as well. I mean, if they can get, you know, back-to-back -back wins or even four points from the next two home games, it then breeds a little bit of confidence going into that big East Anglian derby as well and sort of the big Christmas period that's coming up for them. And, and the other side of the East Anglian derby is Huddersfield at home as well, which are another side that are sort of down there in the table. So it feels like these three home games particularly are a great opportunity to really maximise the points. And then if you then get Sargent back, I think the whole mood and, and the sort of, I suppose the feeling around the football club could completely change because, you know, you, you say they are then sort of just only a point or two points outside the playoffs ahead of that sort of Boxing Day clash at West Brom, then everyone's going to be back on side a little bit again. You know, I'm not saying for, for the long term, I think there's still going to be question marks around David Wagner and, and sort of Ben Napper's uh, sort of vision for the football club moving forwards. And, you know, I don't think David Wagner's the long term option for, for this team, but at least it then gives a little bit of a it's a little bit of optimism and something for fans to go back to Carrow, excited to go and watch their team again because it feels like it's been such a lifetime since fans have really sort of enjoyed going to Carrow. They had that small spell, I suppose, at the start of this season where they were where they were getting wins. But um, yeah, there's an opportunity. The injuries, that you say, will be a, a huge boost in terms of getting Sergeant back because I think the system that, that you know David Wagner's wanted to try and play at the start of the season, you could see that it was starting to reap some rewards and, and how crucial he was with Barnes. Um, in terms of the way he's trying to play, so yeah, the next next two games for me could be big. You know, if, if they get a couple of wins or even four points, then it, it just provides that springboard to then go into the Ipswich game with a little bit more, probably a little bit more optimism than the fan base is feeling at the moment. And I think we spoke about it. I mean, Paddy on, on the way back, and I think the Ipswich players are already sort of focused on that Norwich game and kind of. They're really hyping it up, and sometimes that that can almost work in Norwich's favour. That a team are so, I suppose, built up in terms of adrenaline that, that Norwich could go there and almost play what they're doing at the moment and, and just try and nick a nick a result. I'm not saying that will be the case, but um, we can we can live and hope. And I think the next two games are a good opportunity to to try and you know go into that Ipswich game with a little bit of confidence. Here's one for you then, and I'll, I'll ask you all this um, because you, you kind of documented the run of games there: Preston, Sheffield Wednesday, uh, Ipswich away, then Huddersfield. Would you take three wins from those home games if it meant a, a defeat at, at Portman Road? If I could say now, that would that would mean Norwich City would would head into that Boxing Day clash and obviously into Christmas as well, sitting inside the the top six. Sam, would you would you take that? No, no. I've, since I started watching Norwich, they've never lost to Ipswich, and I've never been to a derby in person either. So if I go in the first round of map, they lose, I'll be absolutely heartbroken to be honest with you, um, and I'll feel like I'm the uh, I'm the curse, you know, as much as I'll, I'll try and be as impartial as possible. I feel like when it comes to a derby, and also, right, like, I suppose this, this might be looking at things glass half empty, but I don't personally feel Norwich have any real likelihood of being promoted or relegated this season. So, uh, <laughs> not, not to say none of it matters, but, you know, three wins or, or not, um, I think if they can stay unbeaten against Ipswich this season, which is admittedly a very slim possibility, um, it, it might be actually more of a, a long-term achievement than than anything they managed to do this season. Because for me, three wins might be the difference between 11th and 15th at the end of the season. But I'm sure Norwich fans aren't aren't going to be especially um, bothered by that to be honest I suppose I could look at, look at it in in a more glass half full way and if I actually genuinely felt there was a chance of them reaching the playoffs I'd say take the three wins all day but for me um, maybe that's quite a negative uh, viewer of the the way that things are going on the pitch at the moment I'd probably say um, yeah I'd probably say take the whatever draw a win against Ipswich as, as long as they don't lose I think I'd take the three wins Paddy all day long but then I'm not a Norwich fan, so, you know, but in the bigger picture, then, yeah, because nine points from 12 off the back of nine from the previous 12. Taking Sam's point, whether they are um, playoff material or not, um, you'd have to say not, but at least they would be in that conversation moving into the turn of the year, and then, you know, who knows from that point. So, But as I say, 
I have seen quite a lot of Derby wins, so maybe I'm a bit blasé about it. But uh, but if you offered me that, then I'd snap your hand off for nine points. And if I'm being greedy, I don't want to go there and get whacked four or five because I don't think that would be pleasurable for anybody connected with Norwich. But uh, but in an you know, if it was a narrow defeat and you know, I've given a good account, then bookended by nine points from twelve. Yeah, I'd, I'd take that all day, Connor. Yeah, in, in the and Adam, in the spirit of a very famous uh, TV show coming back, if I offered you nine points from three wins or a, or a Dar- and a Derby Day defeat or a Derby Day win, and I don't know, less fewer points, deal or no deal to that? Uh, I'd, I'd have to go with Sam to be honest. I think uh, <laughs> I think just for kind of the the fact that the Ipswich fans generally from what I've gauged off social media and maybe other media outlets following their club probably feel it's their time and they're going to get the win so I think it would just be typical Norwich to to rock up there and and go and get a result and just kind of deflate that bubble Um, for me that would that humour that that would bring is worth is worth far more than than potentially three wins that that might mean Norwich finish 12th rather than 13th so uh, I think for that reason just to continue that run as well, because I think that'll take them through then till obviously the, the return game in April. It'll be nearly, what, 15 years yeah, then? 15, yeah, yeah. So I think for that, for that, um, just for those purposes, and like, I, I know a couple of people that, that support uh, the other side of East Anglia, so um, just, I suppose, for that reason as well, um, it just gives a little bit of bragging rights that um, even in this pretty difficult season could be a, a bit of a bright moment. Yeah, well, you, you referenced uh, Ipswich, Players already speaking about the derby. Cajun Jackson has, has done just that. He's uh, he's very keen for some revenge. I think he's one of few Ipswich players that were involved in that three 0 defeat, which I think he said that they they could have won on a different day, which is uh, a different debate in itself. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, since we're talking about the derby now, I didn't really want us to have this conversation yet, but we, we're here. It, it, uh, and you've you've said it. It would be very funny now if Norwich are able to get anything from from that game, given uh, what they are achieving, and it has been an incredible season from from their perspective. Um, and, and given their home record and how freely they, they score at home uh, and given how poorly Norwich City have been this season if that if that uh, record is still intact after that game it would um, I don't know would that be more funny than, than the Tim Closer header? I think yeah. no, no, no. You don't think you think Well, funny. Funny. Was that funny? That was funny. That was just yeah. funny. Yeah. Well, well it was funny but it was a magical moment. But it was also funny. You mean funny from a ha-ha Ipswich dimension? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think I think I think in the, in what we've mapped out here to go to Portman Road and and walk away with either a point or three would would top that definitely because the trajectories of the two clubs. You look at the points differential right here right now. It shouldn't even be an argument. Ipswich should roll over Norwich on that night, but Derby's to coin the cliche, the form goes out the window, doesn't it? And it'll if you know if it's just a arm wrestle then. Um, I'd fancy Norwich's chances in that type of game. It, where I'd fear is if, if Switch continue in the same attacking vein that they have done and sweeping teams aside at Portman Road, which cuts to Adam's point that you know if they get too caught up in the emotion of it and the hype of it, that might just knock them off kilter a little bit. So it's really interesting dynamic in play going into that game. Yeah, there, there, there is a game, I think, uh, that Brian Hamilton was in charge of Norwich. And for anyone who, who is that uh, clued up with Brian Hamilton's reign of Norwich, it, it wasn't particularly great. But uh, and, and Norwich under his reign weren't particularly great. But uh, he, he went to, to Port Road in, I guess, kind of similar. So I don't think they were doing quite as well. But in, in similar circumstances, they managed to get Norwich a win. So it's not not completely unheard of. But... Um, yeah, that's that's a game that is looming large on on the horizon. But but there's two ahead of that, and and I guess Sam, all of this leads into the the need that, irrespective of of how you feel at the moment, whether you're basking in the glory of of of, of nine points from a possible twelve, or whether I think which is probably where where we are in terms of, it's great, but we need to see a bit more performance levels. You've got two games now at home to 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 really do that. That that needs to be the target for Norwich City. Yeah, I think. To be fair to yesterday's performance, I, I may well be in the, the very slim minority, but I thought it was probably quite a significant improvement on some of the performances we've seen in recent weeks. When you look at how dire they were against Watford, QPR was one of the least entertaining games of football I've ever seen in my life. I didn't think Norwich were good. I didn't think they looked like a, a playoff-reaching team, but they probably looked like a, an upper-mid-table team, which is actually above where they are at the moment. So I think in that sense you could say they were tracking in the right direction. I think there were some good performances from individuals who probably needed it. Looking at Ono Hernandez and Marcelino Nunez, I think that was probably Nunez's most consistent 
performance for more than a year, even looking back at, I think, that double against Birmingham, those were pretty much the only two moments he produced in that game. So that was probably his most assured and busy and reliable performance for a long while. Um, and I, I did think, actually, there were a few positives um, without without wishing to sort of speak up too much a, a game that felt very championship mid-table. So I felt like if they can carry that on, they might be heading in the right direction, but it's just whether there was actually any real rhyme or reason to the, the way that that game panned out, which you'd suggest, based on the evidence of this season, there probably wasn't. In pre-season, we heard they were going to be solid and they were going to try and nick goals almost in the way that they, they did against QPR and a little bit against against Bristol as well. Then they started the season with this free-flowing, free-scoring um, team that was actually terrible defensively but was managing to to get the results and then they went into this barren period where Wagner didn't seem to have any ideas other than what started the season and, and Josh Sargent's injuries seemed to derail that so that would suggest to me that it's going to be hard for them to replicate what they've been doing in these home games against um, against Preston and Sheffield Wednesday because I'm not sure they've come entirely from a a route of planning and um, conscious decision making. I think they've come more from maybe not luck, but more individual performances and moments. You spoke about that that XG, obviously, that seems to be and has been for years now a, a very consistent indicator of where teams are are tracking. So the signs of them being able to carry this on probably aren't good, but the teams that they're playing suggest they should be able to do it. Obviously, Preston start the season very well, but there's always that championship team that seems to surprise everyone at the start. I suppose Norwich, you could throw into that bracket this season as well, and then tails off, and, and Preston have been that. Sheffield Wednesday, as you, as you said, have been really poor. So there is an opportunity to go and improve the performances, um, but it's just about whether they've actually got it in them. We can speak about it theoretically the whole time, but if they don't have the players and you look at even the players who are impressing at the start of the season, I think it's definitely fair to say that John Rowe, although he still looks like a good championship player, isn't tearing it up um, as he was a, a couple of months ago. Gabriel Sarah looks really like the only promotion-worthy player in that team. So, um, yeah, they probably could raise performance levels on a, a short-term basis, but... I'm not sure they've really shown that they've got the tactical nows to do that. So without being too negative, um, I think we probably will see more of the same. If Norwich are able to get results out of it, it'll be more fairly stodgy, unentertaining um, performances. I think that's that might even be the best way for them to go at the moment because I don't think they have the players to, to do it in a, a more entertaining or exciting way. That's probably how how Wagner's looking at it and you can look at the evidence of the start of the season but that's increasingly looking just like a pretty small sample size in which they were in very good form so um, yeah that's quite a massively negative uh, response to that question but I think probably we'd all be in agreement that the chances aren't high that they go and somehow produce these really tactically strong really impressive really exciting performances at Carrow Road um, and you look at the way that they've played at home recently especially and that is that is probably a worry for me. And, uh, at the same time as we're looking at things, especially the Preston game, as, oh, they're in poor form, Preston will be looking at it actually thinking Norwich is an opportunity for them to, to end their run of, of negative results and to try and get back on track. So, you know, there are two sides to it. Um, but yeah, I feel like that's been that's quite maybe a more negative response than than maybe it justified. But um, yeah, it will be quite a difficult task to turn the performances that they've been um, they've been putting out in the last few weeks into better ones and more consistent ones. Um, and maybe actually they just need to ride the wave of momentum into that derby. That that for me might be their best chance of, of going to Portman Road and trying to get something. To be honest. And on that cheery note, let's uh, let's move into part two. If anyone was producing a, a bingo card for, for yesterday's game, I, I'm not sure a Norwich City win would have been uh, that far on it, but but also uh, a comparison from this man to my left between David Wagner and Jose Mourinho, which uh, which is uh, which is good. Um, that was that was quite the celebration from Norwich City's head coach, wasn't it? A special one, yeah. <laughs> no, no. Let's not go there. No, I, yeah, it was mad. It was mad. I just 
obviously following Ida, ball slots in, turns around, bit of type in, look up, and David Wagner, what's he doing on the pitch? So, um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, brilliant reaction, just purely on a human level, said it right at the start of the podcast. Missing the knee slide, though. Yeah, although then some churlish hack in the press room afterwards. Oh, well, it, there was a big difference because Jose ran basically down the touchline and didn't celebrate with anyone other than himself. And like, they, it's all right, mate. Yeah, OK. <laughs> if you want to go that route. I mean, it's, essentially, it was a, a manager who, to quote David Varner, just lost his mind for a moment in, in the emotion of it and euphoria of it um, and did something... Certainly, we've not seen him do that in, in his Norwich guys. I doubt very much. I mean, maybe there was, you know, there was one, there was one at Huddersfield yeah, um, was, yeah. where Certainly they beat Leeds, yeah, I think, yeah. and that, I remember yeah. him sprinting down right. the touchline. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so it's not a unique, um, but very rare. And uh, I mean, Paul, Paul Chester and our photographer, some absolutely brilliant images of those moments of Wagner jumping on Eder, of players jumping on Wagner and Eder. You know the aftermath for our science Shane Duffy just outpouring of emotion towards the away end brilliant that it was at that end as well you know there's 1100 or so pre-dawn departures in many cases just let's be honest whether you do what we do for a living or you're a supporter or you're a, a football coach or a football player and you're getting well remunerated but put all that to the side that's what football's about it's that emotional lost lost in the moment feeling of pure joy you know that's what it's all about and that's why I guess because you know those moments exist and we've all experienced those moments around Norwich in years past that when it goes the other way and consistently goes the other way you know that's why there's a, such frustration because you know football at its purest which was that moment there when Adam Eden hit the ball hit the back of the net that's what it's all about and um, yeah no purely on a human level for David Wagner as he said afterwards in the press for six weeks he's had to ask questions answer questions about his future and he has done and consistently said look it's not up to me it's in the hands of others I'll just continue to do what I can do work as hard as I can with my coaches and you know what will be will be so on a on a purely human level for him to be able to experience that contrasting emotions um yeah great to see great to see but uh you know You'd like to hope there's a few more down the track with him in charge still because, um, yeah, it's it's a lot more enjoyable for whether it's what we do or whether it's your fans when they're doing well and things are going well and uh, everybody likes that, the excitement. It's human nature. You know, it's you want optimism, you want excitement, you want something to enjoy. You don't want misery, frustration. And I mean, football's supposed to be a release, isn't it? Not not more, more drudgery in your life. There's plenty of that anyway in people's lives. So... Um, yeah, that for me, in one microcosm of David Wagner launching himself, Usain Bolt-like down the touchline and then encroaching on the pitch. I mean, we have said just before we started recording, you know, hopefully there isn't any repercussions because that would be, you know, quite official in that sense. You know, if, if referees or and or assessors and or fourth officials have documented that encroachment and there's some sort of fine coming down the track, but then, you know, we don't need to get into that debate about football's gone and with VAR and what have you, but um, parking, whatever repercussions there might be, just um, just that release. I think probably in that one act, you saw a man who'd been under the most intense pressure fighting for his future as Norwich manager um, and just that release in that moment, go and celebrate with his players um, and wring every last moment of euphoria out of that and then the scenes at the final whistle as well with the away supporters who... You know, tremendous, really. You cannot underestimate off the back of, and I'm sure we'll get into it in short order, you know, the annual meeting and that sort of standoff um, for them to experience that uh, never more deserved, really, was it? Mm. And can I just say, if anyone does feel there should be repercussions for David Wagner, honestly, grow up. What a ridiculous thing that would be. To yeah. fine him for that um, would be would be ludicrous. Um, if, yeah, if we get to that stage, then uh, the, the game's gone, to use that cliche. Uh, well, just finally on, on the game, Adam, before we, we, we come into the uh, the AGM shenanigans, um, Angus Gunn, uh, we kind of touched upon it a little bit, two really big saves in, 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 in the first half. Um, really good to see him back first and foremost, but also probably underlines just how important he is to this, to this Norwich City cause, and I guess probably why he's their number one. Well, 28, but, you know, number one. Yeah, I think I saw a few people on social media saying it, you know, sort of those saves in the first half kind of kept Norwich in the game where maybe at Watford 
George Long, a couple of sort of shaky moments that have cost them potentially getting some sort of form of result in. Again, they didn't really deserve anything from, but uh, yeah, for him as well, just to be to be back in back in between the sticks, you know, after kind of what would have been a probably a difficult period, he missed the international break for for Scotland and. You know, sort of, I suppose having to watch Norwich's results uh, from afar, you know, and the performances, I'm sure he'd have wanted to have got back, back in between between the sticks. And yeah, I think for him as well, to it's unfortunate probably that he didn't get a clean sheet. You know, sort of the way he performed is probably the one of the the only players that could probably come off the pitch and say they performed to a, a really high level yesterday, um, despite the the result, of course. So. Great to see him back, and I think particularly for like those games against like Ipswich, you know, he's going to absolutely relish that. You know, he's obviously of course a Norwich boy, uh, a Norwich fan. I remember the the game there a few years back when uh, with the Madison one where he sort of celebrated in front of the sort of noisy end of Ipswich, if you want to if you want to term it that. Um, I'm not sure it was that noisy before for recent years, but uh, to sort of see something like that again would be great. So for him to be back, it is big because you know you could sort of see the. I suppose the criticism for George Long, I think it was justified at different points, you know, sort of some of the mistakes he's made in in recent weeks. Um, so it's sort of great to be to be back and, and feeling quite confident with, with who you've got between the goal. Absolutely. Um, let's let's talk AGM then. Um, Paddy, I'm going to come to you because you, you weren't there. I know you were watching it remotely and you've subsequently caught up with uh, the, uh, the interviews and, and whatnot afterwards. Um, what, what do you make of it? That feels like the, the, the question to ask. It's obviously inflamed quite a lot of debate. It, it probably would have, and again, I'm sure that uh, perhaps Delia and Michael in particular were, were particularly glad when, when, when that Adamida goal went in, because if not, I think there would have been perhaps a lot more conversation and uh, a lot more angst around um, at this moment in time as ever. And again, I keep coming back to Dean Smith uh, when he used to say, you know, winning is the best sticking plaster you can, you can have to an extent. Um, what, what, what did you make of everything that, that was said both from shareholders, from 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 those at the top table as well. What was said subsequently in those in those media interviews? Well, I mean, there was there was a lot of things. I, I think if you were a Norwich fan, you would have liked what you'd heard. You know, I thought Napa spoke very well. I thought Mark Atanasio spoke very well in the formal meeting uh, and, and subsequently in the, the round of interviews. But I also felt it, it very much screamed: this isn't a temporary fix. This is multiple transfer windows if we refer, reference the quote about you know from Ben about um, lowering the age profile of, of the squad you don't do that in one window you know that's multiple seasons multiple seasons worth of work let's be honest the the, the sort of the Atanasio line about the you know this this data in-house data that they want to build you know build out from and, and that'll inform all their decision making recruitment playing maybe even sports science and the medical departments all of that doesn't happen overnight so I think that I think there was a realism there that you know this is quite a prolonged turnaround time um, but unfortunately all of that I think was over overshadowed hugely by by the comments principally from Delia um, you know regarding uh, whatever percentage you want to put on it but but nevertheless a constituency of Norwich fans who they feel uh, to use her phrase whingers you know um Terrible optics, terrible optics. In a room of shareholders, I said this on our Insta Live uh, Sunday morning before we left for Bristol, delivering that message to a, a group of people who are in probably majority of cases season ticket holders but also shareholders can get more committed or loyal part of the Norwich fan base and for them to sit there in a room and hear about how some of their fellow fans are, are viewed at the top table as whingers, I just thought... Um, on top of everything else that they've been called in, in the last 18 yeah. months as well. And it's worth pointing out that that response from Delia, passion, impassioned response, was in response to a question from the floor about just give us some hope from a fan slash shareholder who said, just, you're an Norwich fan, we want the team to do what you want the team to do, which is perform and, and give us hope and give us optimism and give us something to believe in because there's been none of that over the last two years on the pitch and off the pitch. And... Uh, I didn't think that was a question that deserved that response, frankly. Um, but she was obviously frustrated. She wanted to get that message across. It's a message I've heard internally um, previously that they do feel there is this percentage uh, who aren't helpful, who are detrimental. I mean, it was more more broadly um, mapped out then in, in other areas about you know the atmosphere at Car Road and that the players maybe being inhibited to play in that atmosphere and you know none of that. Um, really is messaging that fans want to hear and for me it's symptomatic of a club that you know 
culturally has probably lost its way a little bit, if that's really the view at the top table. Um, and a club who were talking down to supporters and at supporters rather than, you know, bringing them on the journey, which to give him his due, Mark Atanasio, I think, did reference. I mean, he said for him, hearing that frustration in the room from supporters slash shareholders is actually what he wanted because that shows they do care and that you can bring them with you on this journey as long as you communicate clearly, consistently and, and try and map out what they're trying to do and that where it is now to where it, they want it to go to is, is a, quite a journey. Um, so, shame, shame really that, that we're t we, we've been talking subsequently about, you know, those comments really because clearly that, that isn't bringing people together. You know, that's, that's divisive and that's her opinion. That's fine. She's, she's had to bear the brunt of it, I'm sure, um, down the years and as Stuart Webber did as well and, and you know, people who are in those positions. Um, so, I, I don't deny her the right to say it but you know I don't think in, in that environment at this time given what they're not doing on the pitch given the questions around David Wagner given the patchy recruitment which Ben Napper himself had more or less um, alluded to you know that the fact that the age profile of that squad is is clearly wrong and something that he's going to address as a matter of urgency you know and then you get into the performance or non-performance on the pitch failure in the Premier League failure in the Championship failure this season so far in the Championship all of those strands I don't think are reflective of a whinging fan base. So, you know, as I say, hopefully, you know, the results Sunday and some positive results in, in the shorter term will will move us past that. But um yeah, I don't I don't think it's uh, it was a helpful intervention if I'm honest. Yeah, there are points I think when you can, um, you know, Daniel Farker used to do it quite well, Sam, when Norwich, and I remember him doing it during certainly the first title season, at points during the Premier League one as well, um, where you can you can say things and, and, and want more noise and want supporters to deliver maybe a slightly different message in a slightly different way. But you, ha you have to have, well, one, you have to have enough kind of uh, substance on the pitch to suggest that, that that's, um, that's worthy of that. Um, and also, you probably need to have enough credit in the bank to be able to do that. And as, as Paddy alludes to, given the way the club has transpired over the last two years and, and what they've not done on, on the pitch, perhaps more than what they have done, to, it, it creates, again, optics. It's, it's the optics of it. And, and we heard a little bit of it, Ashton Gate. Not, it wasn't the majority of the fan I don't. I'm not getting into percentages, but it wasn't, it wasn't the majority of, the, of, of that away end that we're seeing. And I'm not quite sure whether we've worked out this thing. It's all our fault or it's not our fault. It was one of those. Um, it, it's that optics, isn't it, of, of this kind of blaming of fans again. That, that, that causes a real frustration for Norwich fans because you know they had this with, with Stuart Webber a few times who, who would prod them and poke them and uh, call them divorcees and all, and all of those kind of elements. It's just not, it's just not helpful. And, and I've said it before, football clubs, and we've, we've spoken about unifying and togetherness, if you're going to succeed and be successful and, and create uh, and, and perhaps even perform um, more than, than than the qualities that, that you have in, in the squad and on the pitch, 18-19, you could go back to, to, to obviously the Paul Lambert um, era, uh, Nigel Worthington's team. Those those really successful teams in Norwich City history have been everyone united pulling in one direction. This just feels like another kind of us and them situation. Yeah, and I think probably the levels of consideration as to what was said is makes a, a big difference. You obviously spoke about... Daniel Farker there and the way that he used to message it when he wanted more noise and maybe more support and he wanted everyone to pull together. He was somebody who spoke very emotionally and, and you know, even when he obviously came back um, earlier this year, it was quite heartfelt, but he was also somebody I felt that really knew what he was saying and knew what message he wanted to convey, whereas you got the sense from, you know, the interview with, with uh, Delia and Michael and, and Mark Atanasio, um, after the AGM, it was actually just, it felt more like a chance for Delia to vent her frustrations and to put a message across that would get Norwich any closer to achieving their aims. You know, she speaks about a, a minority of, of fans and, you know, 20% whingers and whatever. Um, so then try and, when you've got the opportunity to speak to these fans and to try and get them on side, actually do that. Don't just vent and uh, and treat them like opposition. And I'd also question those percentages in terms of 
what she categorises as, as whinges. Surely she doesn't believe that 80% of Norwich fans think that things are going well at the moment. Um, you know, you'd be concerned if it wasn't actually more than 80% that felt things were going pretty poorly because otherwise the standards at that football club have, have slipped um, considerably. And yeah, I don't really understand this this culture of seemingly falling back on its fans' fault when uh, when things go poorly because if you've ever spoken to to players and, and coaches really the message that they often give actually is you know maybe fans make a little bit of difference but once you're on on the pitch you're focused on the way that you're playing and actually it doesn't make huge amounts of, of difference and there have been times yes when you felt like the players performance was affected by um, by the atmosphere at Carrow Road and the way that fans felt but the only time I really significantly felt that maybe impacted the result at all was that Blackburn game under Dean Smith when they lost 2-0 and that was the most toxic atmosphere there's been at Carrow Road for a really, really long time. So it's not like week in, week out these fans have been have been impacting the play in a, a negative way. In fact, they've actually been fantastic and I think you've spoken about it a number of times how from the start of the season they've been willing to give the team a chance against Hull, they, you know, they went 1-0 down against a team that wasn't really expected to challenge for promotion on the back of the worst season in, in recent history really for Norwich and they were still back in the team and their response was still to, to chant louder and try and get the team back in the game so they have given this team plenty of chances and they've given Wagner plenty of, of goodwill, it's not like as soon as that winning run ended at Rotherham, um, they were willing to turn. I remember actually speaking to to fans after that game and there was no feeling whatsoever that things were going to turn the way that they did. It was everyone I spoke to, it was a blip and Norwich have been good enough this season and they can challenge for playoffs. There was nobody there willing to turn. They only turned when results fully turned and when the team became a mid-table mid team and the mid-table team that they are now, so I feel for those fans in a, a big, big way. Um, Paddy mentioned culture, and I think that's it's scarily indicative of the way that they're speaking about things behind the scenes. If that's what Delia is willing to say on camera, how do they view the fans when they're when they're speaking about things at Colney, and where is the willingness to take responsibility for what's going wrong? There seems to be a lot of chat about hard work and you know, adoration for Stuart Webber for how many hours he put in and how much he cared. But where is the willingness to take responsibility for footballing decisions and to look at things and say, the players haven't been playing well enough, the coach hasn't been coaching them well enough, the right players haven't been recruited above that, you know, everyone around that. Is there any willingness to, to take responsibility for those decisions or behind the scenes are they just talking about the fans and how much the negativity is impacting them because even if it was the levels of, of negativity that they seem to suggest there is, which I wouldn't say there has been in a, a, a toxic way um, that shouldn't be affecting your footballing decisions and that shouldn't be affecting people to to that degree. I spoke to, to someone actually pre-match um, at Bristol who made the, the good point that everyone deals with negativity in their daily lives. It's something you have to, to address and you know plenty of people will come across problems in their working lives. They don't just blame the sort of external factors and and you know observers and what's going wrong and, and fans for that. Uh, I'm not saying everybody has fans in their job but you know there are always external factors and things that you can blame. It's not a, a good way to look at life to to blame those things wherever possible. And I think people need to take responsibility inside that club for where things have, have gone wrong and set about dealing with them in the right way rather than just acting like it's not their fault. Yeah, I, th I think there's, there's, there's often two ways to, to approach this. Maybe, there, maybe there's more, but to me, there, there feels like two. You either um, you take that negativity, which, which ha you know, has been there. I don't think anyone's denying that it's, it's, it's been there. But you can look at that and then you can internalise it and you can almost um, hold a mirror up to yourself and say, OK, how do we change this? How do we make sure that those people who are negative, why are they negative? Are we listening to them? Are we responding to them in a way that is conducive to 
success and, and, and making sure that um, we're channeling that energy to keep us going? Or do, or, or do you just kind of palm it off and go, well, they always feel like that irrespective, yeah. so we just plod along? Yeah. I, I just don't think you can do that. And then it creates, when you start labelling them as boo boys and whingers, I mean, it's just, it, it, it exposes the, the chasm that there is between those two entities at the moment, when, when fans are thinking one thing and, and people inside are thinking the other. And it, it, it just create it just creates, and, and again, she, she touched upon this um, kind of unprompted, really. It, it makes you look and feel out of touch even though we know they're not, they're, they're not because they do speak to Norwich fans. They are in the Lion and Castle every game and, and look, who knows what, what those Norwich fans are, are telling them and who knows what people inside are telling them. But there, there, there is definitely um, a bunch of supporters and we heard it in the AGM as well who aren't happy. The biggest applause of the night came from, from, from two very good uh, interventions actually from, from Norwich supporters. And then Adam, there were these very odd comparisons or mentions of, of Portsmouth, which, I mean, I, I've, I've had a look, so I've, I've just had a look there. Uh, Norwich haven't played Portsmouth in a league game since 2011. It was that Simeon Jackson header that got them promotion to the, the Premier League. I, I'm just looking through the, the list now. Nor so Norwich have never beaten them by, by six goals. I think uh, the, the, big, the biggest defeat um, that Norwich have inflicted off, on them, looking at it, looks to be, I can see there's a... There was a 3-0 in uh, 1975. Uh, they won their 4-1 in uh, 1970. Um, there's there's definitely no 6-0 or, or anything. So I don't know. Maybe they go and watch. Maybe they go and watch Portsmouth. But when when those words were uttered, um, it's less about less about Portsmouth. I think that's more probably a tongue-in-cheek point. And there, and again, very very small minority of Norwich fans trying to get the player Pompey chant going at Ashton Kate uh, on Sunday. Um, but there was enough that it was audible from where we were. Um, but in my mind, I keep going back to Home Park and Plymouth, Norwich City 4-0 down at half-time. That second half, they were tremendous. They did sing in, in, in not, maybe not support of their team, it, it almost felt in defiance, really. But they were singing, they were chanting. And, and that was a point in time where they had absolutely no reason to. They could have been as, as negative and, um, of course, not abusive, but certainly um, as... Uh, as negative as, as they wished about uh, about their team, and, and they chose not to. So I think this this kind of idea that Norwich fans are always negative, come what may, I just don't think that's based in in reality or fact. Yeah, I think it, it, in some ways the sort of turn in fan mood has only really been in, in recent weeks. You've kind of seen Carrow just feel very apathetic, very quiet. Um, <laughs> the fans on the road, I think, again, they've they've got nothing to really to get behind because the performance has been has been dire. There's not really been. You know, sort of many goals being scored. They're, they're leaking goals left, right, and centre. They have a right to to vent frustration, and you know, it's none of it's ever been abusive towards players or, or individuals in the football club. It's just been literally pure frustration at, that their team has no direction and and anything of that kind of nature. Where you you spoke about it at Plymouth, you know, that second half was. I thought the Norwich fans were louder than the Plymouth fans. You'd have almost not known which team was was six two down. You know, which is. Uh, which is quite, quite, you know, quite something for, for, you know, particularly given the expense they'd have made that day, you know, the long, ridiculously long journey that that was, and, and to still be there supporting their team when they all really could have, you know, got back in their cars and made the the long, long journey home to Norwich long before, probably even at half time, if, if you know, if you're being realistic. Um, so to then be sort of labelled and and sort of, I suppose, you know, sort of this sort of feeling that they're they're all kind of grouped together as, as negative and, and almost impacting their team on the pitch is just it's just not a fair assessment and. I think you look at those individuals who have criticised the fans in recent years, Dean Smith, Stuart Webber, it's never really ended well for any of them. You know, you look at Stuart Webber, he kind of almost ruined what legacy he had at the football club because of kind of the, the sort of, I suppose, the, the attack of fans at different points. You know, Dean Smith mentioning, you know, he'd rather play away from home because of the, the negative nature of Norwich fans at home. And, you know, both of them are no longer, no longer here. And, you know, I don't think either of them are particularly, well, some fans maybe still have a, a sort of, I suppose a, a warm feeling towards Stuart Webber and what he's done, but certainly not Dean Smith. You know, I think he's, he's struggling to find a Norwich fan that's got a, many good words to say about him. So it never really ends well. So I think those words were were poor, um, and it doesn't help particularly when you've got the, the season ticket renewals coming up in the, in the new year and fans will be sort of debating, you know, in a difficult sort of you know living crisis we all live in now in terms of financials. You know, whether they can justify spending five hundred plus pounds to watch 
what hasn't really been particularly a, a good product on the pitch for two, three, four years, you know, for for those really that have been in the ground, you know, really it's been 2018-19 because, you know, they obviously had that spell in the title winner season in 2021 where they weren't even present. So they haven't actually seen a, you know, a good product on the pitch for, for quite a number of years. And I know if I was personally still a season ticket holder, I think I would, this would have been a season where I'd be debating whether I would want to sort of, you know, pay that hard-earned money to, to sort of go to Carrow every week and, if you're not really getting any release or no excitement or, or anything for, for the effort you're making, um, as well for the away fans, you know, that the, the journeys they have to make every single week, if they're not seeing anything, then why should they part with their money? And then to then have sort of, I suppose, that sort of further fuel added by the comments that, that Delia made, it's just not helpful. And this idea that Portsmouth fans are still cheering their team 6-0 down, I just I really struggled to see that that's the case. I think any team, if they're sort of seeing what the Norwich fans are seeing on the pitch at the moment, are, are going to be negative. I mean, you could almost see it yesterday with, with Reading fans, you know, the way they're protesting against their ownership and, and sort of what they're seeing on the pitch at the moment. We've seen it Bolton fans in, in the past, Wigan, I could go on. I know these are clubs that are more financial crisis issues related, but there has been sort of situations where other teams have seen sort of their teams performing poorly on the pitch and, and turned in the same manner. So I think it's an unfair representation. And, and why Portsmouth, when Norwich, as you say, haven't played them in the league since 2011, they had the FA Cup game at Carrow Road, what, four or five years ago, but they've not played them for years. So it seems a really bizarre, uh, I suppose, comparison of, of, of fans. But uh, yeah, just not helpful in the current climate and the fan feeling around the club at the moment anyway. Yeah, and, and what you said about season tickets, particularly when you when you read sort of minutes of, of supporter panels meeting and they're floating the idea of a 3% increase and they're speaking about um, potentially, uh, well, they're, they're looking at whether or not to, to change certain age bands within season tickets as well. These, these are things that optics-wise won't particularly, I, I don't think, maybe I'm wrong, but it doesn't feel like things that are going to go down particularly well, particularly as you, you said in the financial, not that we need to go down this route, but the economic sort of climate of the country at the moment where people are having to make really tough decisions about where, where they spend their money. Um, and, and I don't know if it still is the most expensive season ticket in the championship, but it's certainly up there. So none of none of this helps and and Paddy just on the final point on this is that you know what we should be sat here talking about is uh, what Mark Atanasio said about self-funding about uh, data and analytics about uh, why they chose Ben Napper there's some really interesting stuff in that conversation and, uh, and and we're not and that's 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 a shame and it felt a real contrast you had one who or, or maybe two people there who who felt maybe quite defensive in nature um, quite willing to, to to have pokes at, at supporters and one maybe who was more measured and more reasoned and um, you know was, was very honest when it came to Watford and, and said that it was it was all of the club's deficiencies being laid bare and um, you know it spoke about supporters as as well and um, the, the important role that, that they play it felt a real contrast of, of kind of messaging that, that you had from from the top people at the football club who are soon going to be on, on the same percentage of, of shares ironically not 20 percent but it's the same percentage no I, I mean the reality is everything now is geared up to the transfer of power from the old guard that's not an uncharitable term but two people who've Historically, as I don't think it's over exaggerating to say they probably did save the club at periods of time and and, um, and navigated it through some choppy choppy waters and have brought success on the pitch, and and that legacy should be ring fenced. Absolutely no question about it. Um, huge figures in the modern day history of Norwich City Football Club, but they are the past. Mark Atanasio is the future. That is taking any emotion out of it. That is what, it, and that's what it looks like when you see that AGM. That's what it looks like when you see the financial interdependence on Atanasio and his Norfolk Holdings vehicle, the group around him. The last set of accounts made that very clear. He is the kingmaker in all of this now. Um, he, when I talk about him, obviously we know there's other people, family and friends in that group. But he, as he mapped out in that round table, he is the arbiter. He makes the decisions. He makes the calls, the final calls. But we're in this holding pattern because we know it was clearly mapped out in the in the sort of the allotment share process that, that, that there's this lockstep approach with Delia and Michael and Mark Atanasio for the next probably two and a half years now, um, backdated from January this year. That feels like a long time now, and it feels like it probably won't run its course because I think if increasingly looks to be the case, we're in for a few years of Championship football, the financial pressures around sustained membership of the championship, i.e. no Premier League broadcast revenue to, to factor in, 
that's only going to increase the reliance on Atanasio uh, as the, the knight uh, shining armour to the rescue because it's it's very hard to see how this current situation in terms of you know Delia and Michael kind of driving driving them forward is 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 going to work in terms of the finances that are not going to be there uh, moving forward if they're in the championship for any length of time. So that's probably a frustration for some Norwich fans that they can see a roadmap now to a future which isn't Delia and Michael and it is a guy who comes with his 18, 19 years worth of ownership of a, a major sporting entity in the Milwaukee Brewers who comes from a financial background. He's a very astute businessman. Finances are his thing. Um, all the elements that you feel could drive Norwich forward into a new era, whether you want to attach a self-funded model on it or not, or label on it or not, it's a mute point. But clearly a guy who has access to finance, who can bring in finance, who understands what what it means within a sporting context because he's applied the same formula successfully to the Brewers, by no manner of means one of baseball's biggest hitters in terms of their finances and, and competing against bigger rivals with bigger finances. All of that is very exciting, but it feels like we're almost on the start line and until Delia and Michael are willing to, to pass the baton on, for, for want of a better phrase, then there's going to be that feeling of holding pattern and and it's an interesting dynamic with Ben Napper now, you know, he's been brought in clearly um, as a candidate who chimes with the Atanasio worldview of what a sporting model looks like and the importance of data in that, but he's clearly still going to have to sort of work within this board, boardroom dynamic that is Delia, Michael and the Atanasio. So that doesn't strike me as the best way forward in the short term. Um, but that's where we're at. And, uh, you know, I think if this season pans out as it, it feels like it will do, which will be another season of championship football to look forward to, or not in the case, maybe, but, um, and, and more, more so the finances, what that means for the finances uh, moving forward. To me, that I don't see any other alternative other than that accelerating the, the, the move to Atanasio, taking it on lock stock. Obviously not in terms of pure shareholding mix, but essentially the guy who's driving this forward now uh, with the financial wherewithal and the sporting ownership nous to to plot a different course. And, you know, if Napa is the individual they think he is, that's why he came through that very rigorous recruitment process. If he proves himself to be that type of person, then I'll go back to my first point about the AGM. For me, that was... That was exciting because it was optimistic. It was something new, as it was in 2017 when Weber first came in and appointed Daniel Farker. That was new. That was innovative. That was ahead of the curve. And the results spoke for themselves after that first season of adjustment on and off the pitch. I think Norwich fans desperately crave a repeat of that. And um, and in Napa and in Atanasio, it feels like the ingredients are there. But because of this lockstep approach... Um, that's that's the imponderable at the minute. How soon will we will we turn the dial and it will definitively be a new era and a new direction of travel? Yeah, and, uh, and what I would say is the Atanasio camp are definitely aware of, understanding of, and uh, appreciative of the fans' frustrations. Probably, probably, maybe even in agreement of some of the the fan frustrations. So. Um, that, that is a, a, an element to throw in as well. You used the word holding pattern. That seems like a nice place to, to end the pod because Norwich are flirting with a bit of optimism, a bit of positivity, but it feels like the next two home games in particular, probably the next three games in, in, in the bigger world view with one very big game on the horizon will dictate where the mood and maybe even where the season goes from here. Thank you very much for watching this week's or listening to this week's edition of the Pinkin.com Norwich City podcast. Uh, we'll be at Cow Road for that game against Preston and we'll bring you another episode thereafter. See you soon.